If you would take your Bibles, please turn to Luke chapter 1. We continue our study through the, the Gospel of Luke. If you are here for the first time, we are doing an exposition through Luke. Uh, this is our new sermon series. Last Friday we started this, this series and we learned from the introduction that Dr. Luke presents Jesus as the compassionate son of man who came to live among sinners, to love them, and to seek and to save those who were lost. And this series we have started is an exposition of the, the whole gospel. So we're not just looking at the parables or a certain section, but of the whole gospel. And it is my prayer that, that we as a congregation will become more saturated by the knowledge of the truth of the gospel and will become more preoccupied with sharing the gospel and living out the gospel. Uh, last week we started looking at two godly, um, obscure individuals, Zechariah and Elizabeth, who were going through a grievous trial. And today we will continue that story. So if you would turn with me to Luke chapter 1, we're going to read this morning from verse 5 to verse 25. So in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statues of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of the incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will, hear, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit of power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and to the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am a, an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Very tactfully, he put that. Notice, he doesn't call his wife old. He just says she's advanced in years. Verse 19, And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. 
And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife, Elizabeth, conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. So how many of you have seen the, the TV series Touched by an Angel? Anybody? I think the first episode was aired in 1994, I think, and it continued for a total of, of nine seasons. And the show was about a, a group of angels that inspired people at various crossroads in their lives. It was a, it was a feel-good movie. It wasn't very biblically accurate, though. Um, and that name of that series was Touched by an Angel. But the title of my message this morning is not Touched by an Angel, but Scared by an Angel. Okay? Scared by an Angel. And how would you react if you, if you met an angel? I'm sure we've all thought of that at some point. You're on your way into church. Um, you're preparing to, to worship on a Friday. And all of a sudden you see an angel. You're encountered by an angel. Um, but Zechariah was, was scared. He was scared stiff by his encounter with this angel. And he was struck dumb by his, his unbelief as well. But in the story, there are, there are many things for us to learn. And I want to think with you about five things we learn in this, um, in this passage. And we don't have the, um, the screen with us, but we have left a little portion for you in the bulletin where you can write down these notes. And I would encourage you to do that so you can see what the, the points are um, this morning. So my first point is the angel's announcement. The angel's announcement. We see the angel appearing here in the first couple of verses. And, and angels appearing are not something that happens every day. It's not a very common occurrence. Especially even in a biblical days, it didn't happen very often. When angels appeared, they appeared for an inver a very important purpose, a very unique purpose that explained the plan of God to some extent to the people that they were, were ministering to. And Luke is telling us that Theophilus, he's, remember, writing to Theophilus, and he's telling us and he's telling Theophilus that by sending an angel to Zechariah, something extraordinary, something big is about to happen. Something unique is going to happen right here in the beginning of this gospel. So first of all, notice who the messenger is. First of all, notice who the, the messenger is. This is not just any angel. This is Gabriel. This is Gabriel. And the last time that we see Gabriel appear in the Bible, it was back in Daniel chapter 9. When God sent Gabriel uh, to Daniel to tell Daniel that his prayers for the captivity of Israel to be ended and for the children of Israel to be able to leave Babylon and to go back to Jerusalem, back to Israel, his prayers had been heard. His prayers had been heard. 
And the angel Gabriel says to, to Daniel, um, he says, and by, by the way, not only will Israel be relieved from their captivity, but God is going to send his son. He tells this to Daniel, that he is going to send the Messiah into the world in response to, to your prayers. So that was the last time that Gabriel was on the earth in response to Daniel's prayers. And now he's here sharing the good news of the fulfillment of that promise that was made. And it's no accident that, that Luke is telling us that Gabriel is now talking to Zechariah because Gabriel is about to announce the fulfillment of that message that he himself had given to Daniel over, over um, hundreds of years ago. And everyone that Luke is telling the story to or who is hearing Luke's gospel read uh, back in the early days would have understood that significance. When they heard the name Gabriel mentioned in this gospel, they would have understood it. They would have understood that significance. That's why an angel is here. It's not an everyday occurrence and it's not an everyday angel. It's an archangel. It is Gabriel, the one who had announced the coming of the Messiah over hundreds of years ago. And that's why you remember when Zechariah, he says, if you look there in verse 18, he says, how do I know that this is going to happen? And the first thing that comes out of the angel's mouth in verse 19 is, because I am Gabriel. Because I am Gabriel. It's significant. And make a note there. The angel's announcement was made by Gabriel. Zechariah would have immediately understood the significance of this because he was, he was a little boy who had been reading Daniel. He had grown up reading the, the Old Testament. And he, with all Israel, had been hoping and praying for the coming of the Messiah, the one that Gabriel had predicted, the one that Gabriel had spoken about. And now this angel who has met him has scared him. And he has said to him, Zechariah, I am Gabriel. You need to believe what is going on here, what I am saying. I am Gabriel. And the last human being that I spoke to was nobody but Daniel. And I told Daniel that, that God was sending his son into this world. And I'm telling you, Zechariah, that he is sending his son into this world. And your son, John, is going to be his forerunner. So this is John the Baptist we're talking about. John the Baptist will be the forerunner of the Messiah. And that's what's going on here in Luke, in Luke chapter 1. This isn't a superstitious people who thought that they saw angels all the time. No, this was a unique event. That's not Zechariah's response. We don't see a superstitious response here either. Zechariah is terrified. He is absolutely terrified. This is not something that he has ever seen before. And look how it is described. Look at verse 12. Luke chapter 1 verse 12. Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. So Zechariah doesn't walk into the temple um, after this experience and, hi everybody, how's it going, and casually move on. 
Zechariah is terrified. He is absolutely terrified. And you understand the significance of this. In those days, just before Jesus came, there were more priests than there were jobs to do in the temple. So if you were a priest, you only got one chance in your entire life and ministry to offer a sacrifice in the, in the temple. Look at verse 9. Luke tells us in verse 9 how that was decided was literally by them drawing lots or casting lots. Look at verse 9. It says, According to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. So the Lord had orchestrated, of course, all of this together. This wasn't by chance. The Lord wanted Zechariah to be there, and we will see the significance of that. But this is his time. This is Zechariah's once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to be offering this sacrifice. One time he could go into the temple. He couldn't do it again. So this is a big day for Zechariah. And you can imagine that there was some significant rejoicing that was happening with his wife, Elizabeth. And of course, some great anticipation that was probably going on in their, in their home leading up to this very special day where Zechariah gets to make the sacrifice and offer incense to the Lord. So he gets in there, he walks into the temple, and he sees this angel. He sees this angel, and his response isn't, oh, ho-hum. His response is one of, of terror. His response is one of fear and awe and, and trembling. And he is troubled in his heart. And of course, this is not something that happens every day. The angel's announcement is not even something that occurred very often. This is a special announcement about the plan of God for the redemption of man. And God is getting ready to fulfill his purpose that he had promised in the Old Testament, brought to pass in the New Testament. And that leads me to my, to my second point that I want us to see this morning, is Zechariah's response. Let's look at Zechariah's response. Zechariah responds in the fear of God. If you study your Bible, when believers encounter God, where they have some, see some manifestation of God, or when believers encounter an angel, a divine messenger, normally there are two responses. They don't fall backwards, they fall forwards, okay? In a sense of, in a sense of grandeur before, before God. There's, no, there's nothing ordinary about this whole experience. And of course there is a, a response of them seeing their own sin in light of a holy God. So they see their, their sin and they see their own sinfulness. You remember Isaiah in, in the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 6. He's asleep and he's minding his own business and suddenly he's captured by this vision of God. And it tells us in the year that King Uzziah died and he sees the Lord himself on the throne and Isaiah sees the Lord being worshipped by these angelic beings. And he's caught up with a sense of majesty and grandeur. 
There's nothing ordinary about his vision and his experience. He just sees the greatness of God. But at the same time, remember what he says to himself. He says, woe is me, for I am a man of, of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips, and I have seen the Lord of hosts. And what he's saying is, I deserve to be incinerated. I, I cannot stand before a holy God. So there's a sense of greatness. There's a sense of grandeur that they have before God. And of course, there's a sense of their, of their, their, old, their own sins. And I don't think we understand the, the gravity of this truth here, or the gravity of this experience. Um, I've quoted Thomas Watson, one of my favorite Puritans. He's, we've heard him say to us before, Till sin be bitter, Christ will, will not be sweet. Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. And I think in many ways, we need to have the similar experience when it comes to our view of God. We don't view God like we should. We don't fear Him like we should. We don't have the sense of greatness when it comes to God. We don't have the sense of grandeur when it comes to God. We don't have the sense of our own sinfulness when it, when it comes to, to God. Now, has there been a time in your own Christian experience, if you claim to be a Christian this morning, where you have been in a time of wonderful, sweet communion with the Lord, and you have trembled at His, His greatness and as a result, you've, you've recognized your, your sin and you want to get right with Him so that you can get closer to Him, so that you can enjoy Him more. And you realize that the only thing stopping you from doing that is yourself. And you need to make right. And God's grace is so much sweeter and so much more magnified when we see clearly who God is in light of our own sinfulness, in light of our own depravity. And that's what we're seeing here in Zechariah's response. Here we see a very godly response when he has this, this really awesome experience with the angel of the Lord. And that's why Zechariah is, is trembling. We see here the fear of God. And the Old Testament rightly says that it is the very beginning of knowledge, isn't it? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. The fear of the living God I'm talking about. Not just a, another academic exercise. Not just some, some fact that we're learning. I'm talking about this relationship. Zechariah did not, unfortunately, believe Gabriel's promise. His belief was a little wavering. He was in a similar circumstance almost to Abraham, remember? But he didn't respond like Abraham. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 4 verse 19 that Abraham, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead because he was about a hundred years old or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. 
No distrust made him waver concerning the promises of God, but he grew strong in his faith, giving glory to God. That was Abraham. But here, Zechariah is a different story. Zechariah did waver in his belief, in his unbelief. And I think Luke intends for us to compare this response to Mary's response, which we will see later in verse 45. There's two wonderful responses here. Because Zechariah's wife commends Mary in a, in a way that seems like a criticism of her husband's unbelief. She says to Mary, Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So she was blessed. But we see Zechariah isn't. Zechariah isn't. So how can this be? How can this be? Zechariah asks for more evidence. Mary just says, this is impossible. I am not married. How can this be? But Zechariah doesn't respond like it. He asks for more evidence. Mary asks for an explanation. Zechariah says, I'm not sure about this. Mary says, well, she can't understand, but still there is unbelief in Zechariah's heart here. Mary receives an explanation, but Zechariah, here we see, he receives a rebuke, and he's made dumb by the, the angel. He cannot speak. And Luke's point here to us this morning, I think, and even to Theophilus, who he's writing to, is be more like Mary when you hear about Jesus. Be more like Mary when you hear about Jesus. Don't be like Zacharias. Don't be like Zacharias. And here's the application this morning. I think it's possible to demand too much evidence before we believe God's promises. We have God's promises revealed for us here. And sometimes we, we demand more evidence. It's not wrong to want evidence for our faith. Um, I've read many books that show us evidence for our, for our faith. A Case for, for Christ by Lee Strobel. Evidence that demands a verdict. These are all wonderful evidences for our faith. And our belief is not just in a, in a fairy tale. Of course, we will need the truth. We need the facts. So our belief is not groundless. Our belief has to be grounded in truth. But I do think there is an evil in demanding signs beyond what we should, beyond what a humble and open heart needs. And Luke shows us a vivid case of this later on in the gospel, in um, chapter 11. Turn with me, if you would, there to Luke chapter 11. I think this is important for, for us to see. Luke 11, the sign of Jonah in verse 29. Luke says, when the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. 
And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So notice, Jesus is not belittling evidence of faith. He's not saying it's wrong to search for evidence for your faith. But notice, Jesus is exposing the hard and the unrepentant hearts of the people that are with him at that time. Because they wouldn't believe his miracles. They wouldn't believe his character. And it was sufficient. The Lord was doing more than they needed to show that he was the son of God. But they wanted more. They wanted more. They wanted more. And there's a warning here, I think, for us. Unless we, we act like Zechariah and we demand too much evidence before we believe the evidence that God has given to us already. We're not willing to believe the truth that is already there for us, revealed in His Word. Now how many of us, think of this practically, in our own situations, when we are clouded by doubt, or we're clouded by a difficult circumstance, rather than believing the, the promises that God is working all of this out for our good. We believe a lie and we demand some extra evidence rather than believing what God has already told us. And God has told us that it's going to be okay. But we fail to believe His word. And instead we blame Him for not giving us more evidence. We need to be careful of that. I remember when I first got engaged, I was very excited and um, I went to work and I told this work colleague of mine that, that over the weekend I, I just got engaged. And he looked at me and he said, yeah, Gareth, whatever. I was like, I got engaged. No, really, I did. I got engaged. And he wouldn't believe me for the whole week. He wouldn't believe that I had that I had got engaged and, and I became a little offended. I became a little offended that he thought that I was such a liar about my engagement. But think about this in Gabriel's context here yeah, and Zechariah. Zechariah wouldn't believe what Gabriel was saying. And if Gabriel, the angel, has a right to become offended, how much more does the trustworthy God whom we serve get offended when we don't believe what he tells us? Remember, Gabriel said to Mary, with God, nothing is impossible. And it's clear, I think, from Luke's narrative that, that God loves to exalt his sovereignty and his ability by by keeping his word and and using us in difficult situations where where it seems impossible where humans can see no possible way for him to do it <laughs> i'm old man my wife is barren she's advanced in years i can't believe it i don't think that you're telling the truth 
That's what we're saying, isn't it? That's what we're saying. Well, let's not be like Zechariah. I think God wants to teach us from this text, trust me, trust me, trust my word. I can, I can do anything, I can do all things. I can do even things that are humanly impossible. Trust me. I think God wants to teach us from this text. You can hear the heart of Luke going out to Theophilus, the, the person who he's writing to. Theophilus, trust God. Trust God. Don't proudly insist on more signs that, that are necessary. God has given all the signs that, that we need. He has created the world and he has revealed himself in the creation. Just go look at that camel outside. God has revealed himself in that camel. He has given us all that we need. Don't proudly insist on more signs. Put your whole trust in God, in his son, Jesus. But there's something else we learn in this passage. And we learn something about prayer. Not only something about the plan of God and the angel's announcement, uh, but about prayer. And that's my third point this morning. Prayers are not rejected just because God's answers are delayed. God's prayers are not, our prayers are not rejected just because God's answers are delayed. Isn't it a beautiful phrase that the Lord, that the angel says in response to Zechariah here in verse 13. Look at verse 13. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. And you shall call his name John. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us how many times Zechariah and Elizabeth had prayed for a child. We don't know how long it had been since they had prayed for a baby. They were old. It may have been a long time that they had been praying. They even may have given up on their prayer a while ago. But... In subduing Zechariah's fear here, the angel has this to say. Do not be afraid. Your prayers have been answered. That's what he appeals to here. The prayers of Zechariah. And I think Zechariah and Elizabeth for a long time had probably thought that this was a hopeless thing to be praying for. That this was never going to happen, their prayers were never going to be answered. And here we learn this very important truth about prayer. Our prayers are not rejected just because God delays his answer. Just because God delays his answer. Our prayers are not rejected because God takes his time. In his time. How long had it been since they had prayed? And my guess is that they started praying that prayer early on in their marriage. And now he says, I'm old and, and very tactfully my wife is advanced in, in years. Now there is a man who, who is hearing this answer that he's been praying for. They started praying for a very long time ago. Now you may be here this morning with something that you've been praying for for a very long time. 
And you may think that your prayer is rejected, that God is not going to answer that prayer. When in fact, God is just delaying that prayer. God is just delaying that prayer. My mother used to say to me that God often answers our prayers on the 11th hour. I think she's right, because the Lord wants us to grow in faith, isn't it? He wants us to trust Him. Not immediately when our prayers are prayed, but right through the the trial, right through the storm that we go through. Just because the, the, the answer of the Lord has been delayed, do not think that your prayers have been rejected. That may be a message that is deeply needed by, by somebody here this morning. And may God minister His word to you by His Spirit from Luke, as we see here. But there's a fourth thing that I want us to see as we continue. And that is a word of the angel to Zechariah. My fourth point is a word of the angel. Look at verse 15. Look at verse 15. The angel says to Zechariah, he will be great before the Lord. He will be great before the Lord. Now we know that this is John the Baptist. And we know that he was very well known during his ministry in the Bible. We read about him. But it was true. Many people knew who he was. Um, He had a very visible ministry. And even though, and many people thought that he was even crazy. He was considered a prophet. Let's remember, he was considered the last Old Testament prophet. And many people thought he was strange. Many people thought he was weird. He, he ate weird food and he, he dressed funny, funny clothes and he, he ruffled a lot of feathers like a prophet should. But there were many people in John's time who thought that he was crazy or, or dangerous. But that was not the Lord's estimation of John here. I want you to see that. The Lord's estimation of John was that he was great. That he was great. In fact, God's own son, Jesus himself, would later go on to say about John that there has never been one born among women greater than he. Greater than John the Baptist. Now let's remember that, friends. Those who are, who are great in this world on the last day will not be the ones who are, who are honored as great in the eyes of the Lord. Now one thing I look forward to on the day of judgment, when we're all there before the throne of God, is seeing all of these people, these obscure individuals that had ministered without recognition, approaching the throne of the Lord. Those who had never got any type of awards, those who were never published those who were never known but faithfully served the Lord in the circumstance that they were given, in the, in the troubles that they were given, come before the Lord. And they are going to hear from the Lord, well done, my good and faithful servant. I, I look forward to that. And the Lord is going to introduce those obscure individuals to us as the great ones, as the great ones. I mean, you don't have to be a, a pastor to receive that accolade from the Lord. You don't have to be a, a famous missionary who gets eaten by a lion to receive that 
introduction, folks. If we are just faithfully fulfilling our role as a Christian disciple maker, we can look forward to that. We can look forward to that. And it will be a glorious day. It will be a wonderful thing. And John was accounted as one who was great. And one who was great. Remember, we have various characters here that we've already been introduced to in, in the Gospel of Luke. And Herod, he was supposed to be a king and a great person. But let's remember, Herod is going to be forgotten on the last day. He's going to be forgotten on the last day. But John won't. I mean, Herod had the castle. Herod had the soldiers. Herod had the fancy chariots. Herod had the great empire. John didn't. John had funny clothes. He probably had a funny, a funny way of living and he was probably despised by a lot of people. Herod is the one who's going to be forgotten, not John. And true greatness in the eyes of the Lord is someone who is faithful. Someone who is faithful. And that's an important message, I think, even that our, our children need to hear. Our youth need to hear as well. It's not important what our peers think of us. What's important is what God thinks of us. One famous Ironic Scottish reformer, John Knox, he used to say, one man plus God is a majority. One man plus God is a majority. And you hear that. Hear that. It's not important what your friends think of you. What is important was God thinks of you. One man plus God, one man plus you is a majority. When the world around you is not honoring God when the world around you has not been faithful, doesn't mean you have to follow that. Doesn't mean you have to do that. True greatness is greatness in the Lord's estimation. My fifth point as we move on here. John the Baptist message foretold. We see that. This is my final point. In verse 16 and verse 17, the angel tells Zechariah that John's what his message is going to be. Look there at verse 16 and 17. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now the gospel tells us what John's first message was. Remember what it was? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And notice that this is the way that the people were prepared to hear the message of grace that was brought through, through Christ. But where did it start? What was the message? The beginning of the message was repentance. Repentance. Why? Because if you do not understand your need for grace, you are in no position to appreciate how amazing grace is. How undeserved it is. If you don't understand your, your need for grace, you're not ready to reach out for forgiveness or for mercy. If you don't understand your need for the forgiveness of, of sin, then you're not overjoyed when you receive that forgiveness from the Lord. And this is why Jesus said to his disciples that those who are forgiven much, love much, 
You know, some people have said to me, Gareth, you, you speak so much about sin. And I do that not to, to make us feel hopeless, but to help us understand that we need God's grace. And if we understand how sinful we are, we will understand how big God's grace is, who is able to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How much do you think you've sinned? Or do you justify your sin and say, well, it's not really sin, it's just a mistake. Everybody makes mistakes. We're all sinners. Surely God will understand. Does he? Does he? Is his death really necessary for your sin? Or can you go to heaven without God? How big is your sin? It was enough for Jesus to die on the cross, folks. Don't minimize your sin. Don't minimize the grace of God. We need God's forgiveness. We all need his forgiveness because we are all sinners who have come short of the glory of God. And it starts with this message of repentance. It starts with this message of repentance. Do you see your need for the forgiveness of your sins? Repentance is an indication of the work of God's Spirit in us to show us what we really be. Yes, I believe, I believe. Zechariah's response should have been the response of the disciples. Lord, I believe. Just help my unbelief. There's nothing wrong with that. Help my unbelief. Help my doubts. Help my fears. Zechariah needed to be forgiven for his unbelief. He needed to repent of his sins. And this morning, folks, what, let me just close by this. What do you need to repent of this morning? What sin is there in your life that, that you have been tolerating, that you have been entertaining? What sin of yours do you need to reckon with so that you can see the marvelous grace of our living and forgiving God? Is it perhaps unbelief? Until we realize that, that you don't deserve forgiveness, you will never be forgiven. We all don't deserve God's forgiveness, folks. What we deserve is hell. Let's remember that. What we deserve is hell. Let's not take God's forgiveness for granted. God works grace in our hearts to, to believe Him. He also works grace in our hearts to see why we need to believe in Him in the first place. So this is appropriate that this ministry of the gospel, this, this good news announced by Gabriel, begins with the work of repentance. And may this work of repentance be the beginning work in every single one of our, our lives. And may God do a work by His Spirit in our hearts this week, a work of repentance for the glory of God. Let's pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we, we bow before You this day. We ask, Lord, that by Your Spirit You would, you would grant us repentance. May we not respond like Zechariah did, Lord, but give us the, the faith